whatever our lives might have been if the time continuum was disrupted, our destinies have changed. An alternate reality. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Gimme That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 43 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we are reimagining classic Trek episodes as Kelvin timeline movies. Welcome back to the show, Derek William Crabb, to help me with this experiment. And I say movies, but did you somehow see this as a, you know, Chris Pine and company doing a CBS All Access show? I don't, I don't want to force you into a corner. No, no, no. There, there, there's no corner. It's fine. I could revise to be like TV movies or something like that. I mean, so, some of the thoughts I had can work in various mediums, let's say. So some of them I actually did envision as like large scale, big budget movie type concepts, but some of them could be a little more, you know, TV based or, or streaming, you know, things like that. Then not only did you violate the rules, you also failed to understand the principal lesson. Please enlighten me. That, that's fine. I, you know, I said movies, but um, that's where my mind went with this. And it doesn't have to be that way. Now, you've been on the show before a couple times, so we don't need to go through the, the, the questionnaire at the top of it. So we can just get into the topic and the task that we've set for ourselves. Like people are going, did you do 70 some episodes? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> no. No. Uh, we each picked one episode per season of the original series, and we turned them into an installment of the Kelvin Timeline story, starring Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Zoe Saldana, etc. And through the exercise, perhaps we learn a little bit about the reboot films in the process. What makes them unique in the Star Trek canon? It's a little bit what we're going for here. But first, we need to recognize that we, uh, you know, we immediately dismissed all or most of the stories reimagined in the IDW comic book series. And they've done a fair few, especially at first. There was like, kind of like, let's take ideas from the original series and see what would happen yeah. if this younger yeah. crew did it. Sometimes very vaguely. Are, are there any favorites or notable examples you want to mention? Well, I mean, I, I remember back when, when that series was launched, we, we talked about it on my own show a little bit. And it was interesting because you invited me on. I sort of picked up where I left off from that read through because I think I only read like, almost the first year's worth of stories, you know, and it's like, I think they were all well written. Like I, I really liked the countdown mini series that led into the 2009 feature film. And, and sure. I believe that was, uh, this series is all written by the same, same guy, Mike Johnson. So like, you know, there, there were interesting concepts. It's like what happens based on, you know, the events in the Kelvin timeline. And so like, you know, like where no man has gone before, it's like, oh, McCoy's on the ship. And because McCoy's on the ship, then, um, you know, Hot Lips Houlihan doesn't come onto <laughs> the ship, right? Like there's consequences, there's dominoes that fall because of of certain events that take place. And I, I guess credit where credit's due. I mean, some of my approach to 
what we're discussing is probably either influenced by those some of those first 14 issues I had read before I started thinking of concepts. And then, you know, just just the idea of what you could, I guess, consequences, you know, like because to me, it's like, does this affect the original episode, the changes that were made in the Kelvin timeline or not? Does that affect produce something I think is interesting or worth exploring, you know? You mentioned where No no Man Has Gone Before. Yes, Elizabeth Denner is not in it. You get a more realistic ending. It's more, maybe it's more poignant because Mm. Gary Mitchell begs to be killed before he can come into his power once again. So, you know, it's played different and would maybe modern sensibilities in a way. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of clever, clever type explanations for certain things that maybe I guess it'd be the same ideas as reimagining a Silver Age story within a a modern context, right? Like you might not have the kind of goofy end of episode laughter, the wink at the camera, like you might try to play it up a little more, I guess, grounded, I suppose, is the best way to put it without sliding either version of a story, you know? And they've got better effects in general. So when they redo Galileo 7, the ape men are better. Yeah. And th- that one also has, you know, it changes the story because of the Spock Uhura romance. Yeah. If Spock is lost somewhere, it's going to be felt Uhura is going to be very important to that story. Uh, whereas in the past, that wouldn't have been the case. Uh, you know, Return of the Archons, that's not one I would have picked to do. But, um, you know, like there's a really cool Archon saucer attached to Landru uh, that you, you wouldn't have been able to see in the original series. Sadly, Kirk doesn't talk Landru to killing itself. It's, mm. It doesn't end with the, you know, with Kirk's massive ability to make computers yes, blow yes. themselves up. It doesn't have the super awesome ending. It has the the more grounded ending, right? Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well. I, but you know, like you were talking about the changes that things make. Like they had the uh, Operation Annihilate was one of the ones I read in the first year that was a quote unquote adaptation of an original series episode. I mean, that decidedly changes things. Like Kirk doesn't lose his entire family line and all that kind of stuff. Like there's discrepancies in the the Kelvin timeline that presumably could lead to other stories. I don't. You know, the the thing that I find interesting about that is they they make some of these changes just for that arc or that story, but there's only a select few where they keep bouncing the ball, I guess, you know, and they, they keep playing off of what happens. And and I think that's what I find interesting is like, if you change a story, that's one thing, but does that change have a ripple, right? Like, does it, does it affect later stories? And sometimes they do in the IDW run and sometimes they just kind of, the ripple peters out and is a very minimal wave as opposed to like a crashing tidal wave or something. And some of these are very, I said vaguely. Yeah. Yeah. There's a trouble with tribbles. They visit the tribble planet. So it's a tribble episode, but it's not the trouble with tribbles. They've got a mirror mirror and you get like a, like Nero and all of that stuff in the mirror universe. So it's not, it's not mirror mirror. It's a takeoff. You know, it's not right. So some of them maybe were, I think initially maybe like, you know, one for one attempts to, to retell, you know, like where no man has gone before, I'd say is an attempt to do a, a one for one, you know, like they, they were trying to follow the exact beats 
but look at specific points where those beats couldn't possibly have lined up. So then you insert different characters into different roles and go from there. And then that's where the the fascination or interest comes into it. But then, you know, sometimes, like you said, the, the trouble with Tribbles or even aspects of like the augments, the Gorn, like different stories that they told. It's not like it's a one for one retelling of the episodes or anything like that. They took the kernel of the story. He makes it his own story and puts his own twist or tweak on the, yeah. the concept, but it's not slavish to the original script or anything. No, I think it would have been, you know, the series would have gotten very stale very quickly if it's just retelling stories that we've already seen with a few little tweaks. So sometimes it just, sometimes it's just about changing the, the point of view. Like they do the apple sort mm. of, but it's yeah. from the point of view of a red shirt who gets, you know, gets hit by one of those flowers. So it, it's a completely different story within the story that we know and, and, you know, it's not necessarily one of the most beloved stories, so... Little little Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or Deadspin yeah. on a Star Trek episode, kind of, you know? Yeah. So, did also did, like, the Tholian web, Kinzer saves the day in that one. Kinzer, Kinzer punches Scotty, that was funny. <laughs> the biggest uh, retelling of a, a past chapter isn't in the comics. It's the most infamous retelling. <laughs> infamous, yes. <laughs> it's Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, that retells the Wrath of Khan and mixes in Space Seed and I, I get you know. There's different things that are mixed into it. I mean, it's it's interesting too because this time around when I'm I was doing my read through and kind of researching for this, like I found it interesting how I always have this thing where I'm like Hollywood just can't let an idea go and and it seems like section 31 is like one of those things they just, mm. they just won't let it die and it's like that's why I was like reading like some of the stories in this and they did some interesting things with it I thought you know they did that thing with uh, Sulu's sister or whatever you know and they had section 31 and the Kittimer arc and things like that but it's like section 31's in the Into Darkness originated in Deep Space Nine, and then now it's like they're on Discovery, and, and possibly they're going to have their own show, you know, and so it's just like, it reminded me of those things where, you know, I, I used to read those articles about Batman Triumphant, it was going to be Batman 5, and Scarecrow was going to make Batman exposed to a fear gas, and he's going to jump out the window, and despite how many times that script changed, eventually Scarecrow dousing Batman with fear gas and him jumping out a window pretty much made it into Batman Begins, you know? So it's like sometimes people just are like, they're in love with whatever that idea is and it just, it just won't go away. And that's something that I discovered upon sort of examining some of these stories and, and thinking of, of ideas for newer ones. Okay. Well, let's try it. Let's do one per season each and see where it goes. What episode did you pick from season one of TOS? So I, I guess this is kind of a cheat, but uh, technically I picked two episodes, but I, I picked the Menagerie. I picked the Menagerie part one and part two. It would have been weird if you only took one of them. Yeah, yeah, it would have been weird. It would have been strange. I guess for me, this was the order of importance for me, and this may reveal the things we learn about the Kelvin movies and, and universe and everything. But my, my premise for how I was going to handle coming up with these is, one, can I elevator pitch these concept changes to you? Can I make them really short and sweet and do the Hollywood elevator pitch? That was the most important thing, Hollywood elevator pitch. So that that's kind of telling for the Kelvin universe. Um, two, and, and these other ones are probably more for me to have fun with. Two, how does this affect the episode's timeline or does it at all? Three, 
am I able to insert random studio executive changes for no reason whatsoever? Because that seems like <laughs> that's that's natural for Kelvin. And then four, are they actually good episodes of the original series? The cadet's logic is sound. Those were the things I wrestled with while I was choosing and, and, and contemplating and coming up with ideas. So for the Menagerie Part 1 and Part 2, it's a great two-part episode from Season 1. Makes use of the original pilot, which of course at the time everybody thought, you know, the, the studio execs, right? They thought it was too, you know, introspective, you know, it was too cerebral, like people wouldn't get it. So that kind of got scrapped and they had to have Where No Man Has Gone Before. But they found ways to use the footage and they incorporated it into this, this framework that that is the menagerie. Spock is uh, commandeering the Enterprise and bringing it to, to Talos Four, and the planet's off limits. It's got the death penalty if anybody goes there. And to explain why he's doing all this for his old commander, uh, Captain Pike, who is now basically disabled, and he's in this kind of apparatus where he can only say yes or no to questions based on the beeps. He's explaining through the backstory, and the backstory turns out to be that discarded pilot. So it kind of tells you the whole story brings it up to speed and has kind of a, you know, essentially a happy ending for Pike, the best happy ending he can have. And so I thought, like, I was toying around with things. Like, I'm like, what wacky things would, like, studio execs do? You know, like, should I just do a swaparoo? You know, like, I was like, Spock is the one in the cage and not Pike. And I was like, does that make sense? And I'm like, that doesn't really make sense, you know? And then I'm like, what if Pike's the one who commandeers the Enterprise, you know, and Pike's the one on trial? And I'm like, well, he just beeps, so that doesn't make sense to me either. And I was trying to come up with like different things like maybe what is probably unpopularly termed fan wank like maybe i could get robert april to replace commodore jose mendez for no reason and it'll be cool or something but i kind of scrapped all those ideas and i wanted to know because for me intuitively and i don't know how you feel about this like you you might have a different opinion but to me i always felt like because of pike's inclusion in the kelvin movie and the way kirk was recruited by pike and the the way he ends up in a wheelchair at the end of the movie and then his, you know, spoilers, his subsequent death in Into Darkness. I was like, intuitively, I was like, this changes things like this messes up the timeline somehow. And so I actually sat down and totally nerded out and I tried to narrow down exactly why I think this messes up the timeline. I was thinking, OK, 2254 is when the cage takes place. So Pike is commander, and presumably this is true of both the Kelvin timeline and the original timeline, maybe? I don't know. Like To, to me, it's kind of strange, because 2258 is when the Kelvin Enterprise is, I guess, built, and he's the captain of it, and all that kind of stuff like that. In the Kelvin timeline, he dies by 2259. This is what I termed death by Cumbercon. But... The Menagerie takes place in 2266. So if Pike's dead, then that means he doesn't go back to Talos IV. Does Talos IV even get visited by Kelvin Kirk and crew at all? My answer is going to be no. They don't visit it. And since Kelvin Pike is dead, he doesn't live happily ever after with Vina. So to me, the magnitude of Pike's visit to Talos IV is drastically diminished. So I'm jumping even farther into the future. 2373 to 2375 is when the Dominion War takes place. And because I'm a big fanboy of Starfleet Academy, the Marvel Comics series, 
Pike, or I guess an illusion of Pike, is around to team up with the Starfleet Academy cadets. So I'm thinking to myself, is that illusion still there? Do they win? Like, do they help in the Dominion War or not? And so I was thinking, well, there's two ways I can take it. And these are my pitches. So it's kind of the answer is kind of yes and no. So here we go. The, the ultimate elevator pitch is Rogue Squadron meets Days of Future Past. I kind of want the Menagerie reimagining to be a tribute to Aaron Eisenberg or Nog. And also give a nod to Starfleet Academy issues 9 and 10, which is titled Return to the Forbidden Planet. So this could be a comic book. This could be actually a pitch for the Strange New Voyages show with Answer Mount. Um, But basically, this doesn't quite fit into maybe what a studio exec would want. Like this is kind of as opposed to maybe a studio exec's dream pitch. This is more like my own personal fan wank or whatever but so so my thought was you could make this a really dark meta take where since they don't have the trial you know the calvin pike is long dead they jump into the future of the dominion war and basically because pike's not there it changes the war drastically because the Dominion does end up killing all the telepaths. They lose the telepath war. We focus on the last days of Omega Squad, which were the five cadets. It's uh, Matthew Decker, who's uh, heir to the the Decker name, I guess, in Star Trek. There's a Vulcan named Tuprell. Nog, of course, is part of that crew. There's a Beta Z male named Idam Astron and 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 Dorian named Pava. So those were the the crew of Starfleet Academy, the the comic book. So I, I'd have it follow them, but it'd be kind of like if it was the dark take on it, it'd be more of kind of like the losers from DC Comics, like following their last days, you know, and kind of doing a you know a hopeless kind of thing, I guess, you know. Rogue One. Yeah, Rogue. That's why it's like Rogue. Yeah, Rogue One. Yeah. Type thing, you know. So, so no, there's no Talosian illusion of Pike, and and that's the crack in the fixed point in time, like Doctor Who, that that changes everything and basically turns it into this dystopian, like sad sack thing. And you just kind of follow like the heroic adventures, and you know, basically them having their their last hurrah, dirty dozen, like wh- whatever you want to compare it to. And is, is this without? Chris Pine and all of these guys are just not in it. Yeah, essentially that's that's why I said this would be probably a, a strange new voyages streaming. Like think of it like um you, you know uh, yesterday's enterprise. It would be like that. You might open with Answer Mount, you know, Spock and Rebecca um Romaine or whatever is number 1, but essentially it it immediately cuts to the, you know, dystopian future and goes into all that kind of stuff. If you wanted to make it really dystopian and miserable like there there would be no saving grace like it would be kind of a a bleak ending conversely if you were going to do the strange new worlds pitch and this is probably what they'd want it to end on what i would do is replace the kelvin pike with the the star trek discovery strange new worlds answer mount pike so basically you you have that last battle but then you have this kind of jeff johnsian moment where answer mount shows up and then it basically corrects the timeline where he does inspire them and they do save all the telepaths and they win the telepath war pike is the dimensional cavalry and they help nog and omega squad and everything's kind of at least 
on its path to being set right as opposed to the bleak kind of thing hopefully people will forgive me this doesn't come off too much as like wizard casting call you know people that are into that kind of thing you know kind of roll their eyes at wizard casting calls where it's like there's you know wrestlers cast as uh superheroes and every other you know pitch that they had so hopefully this doesn't come off like that but um disclaimer you know i don't watch that much tv or movies anymore so i don't keep up with all the stuff and i wanted to make the casting sort of age appropriate so i had to focus on shows i actually watched and hopefully people that were age appropriate for matthew decker I was thinking um, Tanner Buchanan, and he's the actor who is in the new Cobra Kai series. He's the one that uh, Daniel LaRusso is training. For Tuprell, I was thinking uh, Lyrica Okano, um, and she's the um, young lady who plays the girl from the runaways nico who has like the the magic staff basically then of course i kind of uh, it's still kind of sore so i didn't feel like recasting nog but if it was live action and not like a comic book thing where they were doing likenesses or whatever at some point you probably have to recast aaron eisenberg but i didn't feel the need to do that on this podcast but if it was tv and streaming so somebody would have to take over the role for edom ashton i was thinking maybe jovian wade who plays cyborg on the doom patrol show and for Pava, I have enjoyed her on the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Kiernan, Brennan, uh, Shipka. That's my fan casting and my uh, kind of wacky uh, fanfic for uh, reimagining the Menagerie Parts 1 and Part 2. Well, I think there's a an interest in knowing by TNG's time, what does the Kelvin timeline look like? We have no idea, right? So part of me was leaning towards does the, the Kelvin change make it totally miserable and apocalyptic? Because I'm sure there's there's part of the fan base that would revel in that. And if the movies are, for all intents and purposes, dead, then that's kind of like a no harm, no foul thing. It's kind of like a little snicker for anybody who's who's maybe disgusted with those films but then again you could go with the happy ending where it's at least a nod to that but end it on kind of a high note where the good and the right are going to eventually come out on top and it's just kind of a fun alternate timeline weirdness type thing where you can see that that certain events like pike dying had ramifications on you know the far 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 future of Starfleet. Sure. You know, for me, this was my approach because, I mean, we're talking about season one. There are so many good episodes. And as the series goes, I get fewer and fewer choices that I find valid. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so basically, I had to have something to drive my choices. And what I decided on was, since I was going to make movies of all three, I was basically going to make Star Trek's four through six of the Kelvin timeline. That's That was my approach. And to do that, well, it's a longer form, it's a longer story. So I was looking at episodes that had like several moving parts. Each act was different enough that in a movie, it wouldn't just seem all the same. You know, there was a lot of action possible because they are action films. So in this case, my choice was Arena, the Gorn episode. Since this is supposed to be a continuation of the, the proper movies, I'm respecting the fact that we lost Anton Yeltsin way too young Chekhov is no longer in the crew in canon. Hopefully, he's just gotten that promotion off ship. He's on the Reliant? Probably, if we follow all the same details as the, the other movies. But yeah, yeah. his his career is off stage, And I know the character wasn't in season one at all anyways, you know, Chekhov. But I'm still replacing him uh, in the cast with Janice Rand. I know she's in the comics, but she hasn't made it 
to the big screen. So not a yeoman. In this continuity, I'm making her a security and tactical officer, uh, which is a position Chekhov sometimes held, especially in the movies. And it's kind of... Uh, but basically, I'm making her the captain's personal bodyguard for planet action. So there's a close proximity with Kirk, which makes for a classic um, will-they-won't-they relationship through the three films. And she's the tack officer for space action. So either way, you know, she gets something to do. And in this episode, she's replacing the characters of Kellowitz and DePaul. So if you've just watched Arena, maybe it's possible. Like, the, there are these two characters. There's one that, that's doing planet stuff. And Mr. DePaul is on, is, is sitting next to Sulu. I, I, you know, I'm replacing her in these roles. This is my only casting for the film. My only fan casting is uh, I cast my girl Florence Pugh in the role. This is a British Janice Rand. Because I pretty much loved this actress and everything I've seen her in. And I know she can do the physical stuff from movies like Fighting With My Family and presumably Black Widow. The first act has her, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy finding Cestus III bombed out. It leads to a big action set piece where the Gorn are revealed much earlier. Because there's no need to hide them. Uh, you know, it's it's not like, like the big reveal in the show. Uh, we can see them from from the beginning. And we got combat tactics on the planet and Sulu is commanding the ship up above. He's in a dogfight with a Gorn ship, which you can finally see. And I, I know the, what do they call that version that they have now on Netflix where, you know, they've changed the effects. The, the special edition version? Is that yeah, what you mean? whatever they want to call it. And, and they do show it in that show. You get like a Gorn ship. It's tiny and on the screen. It's, they really imagined it like it would have been done back in the day. There's no, there's no like fighting with that, that ship. So here we do see it in action. The furious chase that's in like in the middle of all that isn't a big part of the story because New Trek basically riffs on Star Wars hyperspeed. So you can't do chase stuff. But the Enterprise is led to Gorn Space and near the Metron system. And there we have the Kirk versus Gorn Captain fight uh, with all the MacGyverisms. And it's basically the same result. It doesn't matter if it's very familiar aside from the environment and the Gorn, which would be like a like CG stuff, so it'd look better and be better choreographed. Because anyways, that's just the second act. So it can be kind of the same. But uh, through it, I have the crew of the ship being much more successful in dealing with the power drain. And we got Scotty finding a way to get the power back, in part thanks to Uhura, who's decoding the Metron frequency that's jamming them, while she also translates the Gorn language from the transmissions they're getting from the planet, just like in the episode. And in the process, the Enterprise also figures out the Metrons are actually the ones who faked the Cestus III calls, and they're up to no good. They're hiding behind this veneer of godlike beings, but they're actually just super advanced and trying to create a war between Starfleet and the Gorn so they can expand hmm. their empire in the wake of that conflict. So the third act has Kirk strike a friendship with his analog, uh, even as the Enterprise communicates its findings and, and brokers a peace with the ship, and they collaborate against the Metrons, who I imagine would, you know, they'd be flying these crazy ships that looked like they're made out of light. So you get like these cool effects. Uh, and Rand is instrumental, since this is her... Her debut. Your debut, yeah. She's instrumental in devising the strategy that sends them the Metrons uh, running back to their system. The two parts of the episode, you know, Cestus three, then the fight, the arena fight. But instead of having this uh, moral at the end or anything, we get a full third act where the Metrons are the real villains. Like the inspiration for me in, in some way was what does God need with a starship? 
that mm. line from Star Trek V. We haven't really seen sort of godlike beings in the New Trek movies. The original series is full of them. So how do we do this? And and I feel like it's a, it's a little bit hokey this idea. So basically it's it's like, you know, these guys are faking it. That makes them more sinister and that led to this sort of conspiracy story, race against time before before this war starts and the idea the Star Trek idea that two species do come together. Not like in the episode they're saying, "Oh, this is stuff for the diplomats." And we can imagine that the Federation and the Gorn had talks and had a peace because we don't see them again as any kind of warlike mm-hmm. problem. But in the movie, I want that to be resolved. And I don't want diplomats somewhere out there later resolving it. I want our heroes to do it. They come together. It's enemy mine. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. That's, that's your, that's your elevator pitch, right? Like and that it's, is it's my uh, elevator pitch. <laughs> it's enemy mine, right? Like with the, with the third act where they remove the emperor's clothes, right? Like the, how do you, um, you know, you're the producer, like, do you have a visual concept for the Gorn? Like, I mean, I love the original episode, but I know there are some folks that, of course, don't have the uh, uh, appreciation for the uh, original design of the Gorn in the original episode. But then I know they went on, you know, like Enterprise had its own, like, CGI Gorn. There were Gorns in the video games. And then even even the IDW stuff that we talked about, they they kind of made their own kind of interpretation of what a Gorn looked like. And of course it was not, you know, a strict one for one interpretation of the, the original arena episode. So I'm just curious, like, do you have a preference like CGI? Do you have a preference of like a combination of things like animatronic stuff? What was your vision for how the Gorns would be portrayed in your, in your big budget feature film uh, kick off of a, a new Star Trek trilogy. By the time it comes out, <laughs> I think we can do pretty photo real lizard men. So I'm not too concerned about the CG element, but in movies generally, if, if, if we're talking about just my appreciation of films in general and genre films and effects, I like combinations because a combination of mm. different ways of doing it fools the eyes. So the thing that CG is not very good at then maybe that that's like you use a shot with we're talking about people here but uh, you know for the for sets a combination of miniatures sets and effects is actually fools the audience much better than if yeah. it's all yeah. one of the one of those i found that to be very true even with things that were not set design in the new dark crystal series on netflix too you know the idea that they didn't rely on one or the other the cgi enhanced the puppetry and then you know vice versa right but the takeoff of the the dagorn would be the original design i think maybe with a tail or something you know but Mm. um obviously more mobile but i think it should be kind of faceted eyes and uh let's take those elements and see what we can do to make it like to make a photoreal alien based on that original suit and costume that would be my approach. But obviously, if I'm a producer, I've got, you know, I've got all these people working, you know, I don't want to I don't want to hamstring anyone's creativity. I I'm sure I got like the the best designers and uh, and whatnot and I hope they'll surprise me, you know. That's Hey, it's it's benevolent as well. You're you're employing the the practical effects <laughs> and and the the CG effects. Right. It's it's a good thing. So, let's get to season 2. 
What did you pick for this one? So for this one, I went with a mock time. Great choice. I didn't realize like that, um, you know, because I, I think I was still operating under my my first year read of the IDW series. And I, I did find uh, a little later there was um, some elements of a mock time that were infused into a storyline called After Darkness, where they kind of they did explore a spot getting pawn far after the events of the After Darkness movie, but they probably treated it a little more serious than I'm about to. But okay. but they took it, a, you know, kind of like where he he has Ponfar since there's no Vulcan. It actually like impedes Vulcan's ability to recover from it because the planet itself is gone and uh, they all kind of become caveman wildlings or something, you know. And I guess, you know, the way they decide to solve it is I think uh, Chekhov is instrumental in figuring out that the, the vibrations of the planet can be sort of imitated or duplicated through like transportation. So they do some hokey science from a framostat stuff with the transporters. And when they beam them through with the Vulcan kind of wavelength, then that assists in Spock and this group of Vulcans like recovery from the effects of Ponfar in the Kelvin timeline. And presumably that that then changes how they deal with Ponfar from that point forward. And that that was how they did it. For me, I mean, Amok Time is a classic. It's a well-known and loved episode. This was more me operating on the the crazy studio exec pitch and and kind of the what would a studio exec do. So this one is basically very simple. My elevator pitch is basically catfight on Vulcan. <laughs> This is more of a one for one. The events proceed pretty similar to the original episode. The one thing I might tweak a little bit about the beginning is maybe Uhura brings Spock the soup instead of Nurse Chapel when he throws it outside of the, the you know, get out of here, woman, with your soup or whatever he says, you know. Those are strong words. You might even believe them, but there's something else going on with you. Something underneath. And he's all mad and everything. The changes I would make is I would have Stan die during the destruction of old Vulcan. Like Stan was on Vulcan when it blew up. There's no more Stan. Spock, again, takes the Enterprise to new Vulcan instead of old Vulcan. Old Spock, basically, I would kind of suggest that maybe his popularity or his uh, infamy or whatever causes a change into Pring, where instead of her not desiring to be with Spock because of his fame, she actually now wants to be with young Calvin Spock. So, of course, the twist is in this reimagining the climactic fight is not going to be between Kirk and Spock. It's actually going to be between Uhura and T'Pring. So you can play the... But it's it's a cat fight. This is more the studio exec thing. Total sleaze. You know, one million years BC meets Star Trek kind of thing. Big mud fight between Uhura and T'Pring. Whatever. Again, this is my takeaway from Kelvin. This to me is perfect because it ignores that T'Pring didn't want Spock in the original series in the first place because he was popular. So I'm, I'm specifically ignoring that in my reimagining because I figure that's what a Kelvin movie reimagining would do. For Pon Far, it ignores the fact that even though Uhura and T'Pring have a fight, that doesn't really deal with the fact that Spock still has Pon Far and needs to recover from it. So, of course, I, all I said was Spock drinks uh, a Red Matter milkshake to get rid of it. Like, I'm not even going to deal with that, basically. The idea is that 
the the Mike Johnson IDW did actually take into account that if there is no Vulcan, Vulcan, the original planet Vulcan, is instrumental in recovering. And then, of course, I'm going to totally ignore that as well. And in my mind, that's a perfect Kelvin adaptation. It was the first thing I thought of when you mentioned this idea was I didn't care how, I didn't care why, I didn't care if it messed with any established Star Trek lore. The only thing I cared about was getting Uhura and Pring into a fight. Like that was that was my main goal. So basically crafted it all around that and everything else sort of be damned. So it seems like that'd be like a perfect JJ Abrams Star Trek to me. For fan casting, I wanted that same WTF feeling I had when I realized that Winona Ryder was playing Amanda. I was like, you mean Winona Ryder is Spock's mom? What? So fans of Heathers may or may not appreciate this, but I decided I would cast Shannon Doherty as T'Pau when she shows up sure. <laughs> to head the fight and everything like that. For T'Pring, I decided I would cast Minka Kelly. She'd be well known for like Friday Night Lights, but also um, she plays uh, Don Granger or Dove in the Titan series. So I just think she's a... Uh, She's a gorgeous individual, and I figured T'Pring should be gorgeous, but yet also have kind of like a bite to her. Minka Kelly has that kind of edge, that bite that I've seen, at least on Titans. So I, I figured she'd be good for that role. I was looking forward to seeing what you would do with the mock time, because it is exactly that kind of episode, like the menagerie that just can't happen anymore. The yeah. things that they changed make this now impossible, so it means... You have to imagine what might happen. I think that's the perfect, to use Spock and Uhura, you know, the J.J. Abrams films have done this, you know, almost every film. So it's a weird thing to wrap your head around because I think, I think initially when I saw the 2009 movie, I was so convinced that they were going to find a solution to the red matter blowing up Vulcan. And when Vulcan blew up like that kind of blew my mind, like I was like, oh, holy crap, they are, they're serious. Like to me, like. This may be a uh, thing that gets tomatoes and eggs thrown at me. But, I mean, to me, it felt like the same thing when they decided they were going to, like, renumber, you know, action and detective comics at number one. Like, I was like, oh, you just you don't do stuff like that, dude. <laughs> and it was like it was like you blew up Vulcan. Like, I didn't see that coming at all. That's what's good about it. Yeah, I, I really thought that heralded, like, the opportunity to just do crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. In these Calvin movies, they kind of, yeah, I, I, I don't know that they no. really went with that. But to me, the opportunity to do something like that was pretty interesting. I don't know, though. The, the strange thing to me, though, is when all's said and done, I do kind of feel like with uh, Leonard Nimoy's cameos, even though the IDW comics seem to explore it in more detail and actually have given me a new vantage point on it. I think my take on it always was, oh, well, Vulcan got blown up. No big deal. We'll start a colony. We'll call it New Vulcan. Like, everything's fine. And I think my approach to this was just, yeah, that's okay. Vulcan's not around, but there's New Vulcan, so they'll fly back to New Vulcan. You know, like, and I, I know that's kind of weird, but that that was just how I sort of approached it. Because I, I really did feel like, even though it was such a big deal to me, maybe based on the lack of its follow-up in subsequent films and, and that kind of nature, like maybe it wasn't as a big a deal to the filmmakers. So I kind of went in Rome, you know, kind of did the same thing, I guess. Sure. My choice was the Doomsday Machine. So not one of the better ones, but one that I could see work in three acts. So I have Matt Decker 
played by Brad Pitt. Now, this is going to sound like I didn't really put any thought into it. Not true. I was looking at pictures of actors in their 50s because I wanted somebody that kind of looked like the Mad Decker in the episode. And there was a yeah, pic yeah. of Brad that was essentially Decker's look, the unshaven, kind of scruffy look from the episode. So I was like, okay, no, they actually look alike. And that kind of shaped the movie because then you've got like somebody that's a big star that is charming in a way that Matt Decker wasn't really. Mm. And uh, so my big thing for this is taking a page from the Peter David tie-in novel Vendetta. I don't know if you know it. It suggests that the planet killer from the Doomsday Machine, was a weapon to fight the Borg. So this is my link to the TNG era that you did with the first one. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the movie starts with a teaser that sets up the friendship between Kirk and Decker, uh, with the Constellation saving the Enterprise's butt against Romulans near the neutral zone. Both sides are reacting to their outposts being uprooted by a Borg cube, as is suggested by the TNG episode, The Neutral Zone. The Kelvin twist is that the Collective is attracted to the why are they here now uh, so early? It's because they're attracted to the temporal anomaly that Nero's ship caused. Mm. Teaser ends with the Borg scout ship escaping into transwarp. Time passes. We see that thanks to like, personal scenes, including a double date between Spock and Uhura and Kirk and Rand. We keep that going. The relationship is evolving. They're getting perhaps dangerously close. Then the action of the original episode. But intercut with the Borg returning and attacking Romulan ships. So that when you find the constellation all banged up, uh, with its crew dead, and, you know, in a system with all the planets destroyed, you think it's the Borg that did it. It's not. So obviously the, the trailer will be hiding a lot of things. <laughs> but mm. uh, it's not. It's the planet killer. Kirk, Scotty, Keenzer beam over to the constellation to get it working. There's some damaged ship action sequences, just like in Star Trek Beyond, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, they find Decker there. He's lost everything. Now he's unhinged. He gets beamed to the Enterprise before the planet killer gets close. The planet killer in the show interferes with comms and transporters and you know there's like a jamming effect so that's still in it attacks the ships are separated with kirk aboard the wrong one decker doesn't like spock's plan so he assumes command and you get a lot of stuff with mccoy spock uhura sulu and rand you know reacting to this commodore who has a death wish uh, getting back in touch with Kirk. Eventually, they find a loophole to get him, uh, Matt Decker, off the bridge. But he gets the better of Rand in a big fight, which certainly won't endear him to Kirk. Uh, he steals a shuttle. This is where he tries for the mouth of the whale. By this point, his madness is really troublesome because the ships enter the Rigel system, which I imagine is now next to the neutral zone. Who knows? I, I, yeah, I, I, I didn't want to crack open a uh, an atlas. In case of, <laughs> yeah, I don't want it to screw up my, my plans. Uh, <laughs> yeah, isn't that the bitch of these things where you're like, this is the greatest idea ever. And then you do a little bit of research and you're like, oh, never mind. You I mean, know? it doesn't have to be Rigel system. It can be any system, right? I'm just saying it's Rigel's system here, because that's what yeah. it is in the episode. And the system is filled with cubes. Decker is about to destroy their only weapon against the Borg, essentially. So by this point, the Enterprise crew has like figured this out. Kirk and Scotty beam over to the shuttle, they fight him for the controls, and they just manage to get past the weapon. Because if you look at the special effects... It's really just the middle of the mouth that is the the beam. Right. I was going to ask about that. I was like, are you yeah. are you tied to the 
death space stool look or i always called it the space cigar but it's kind of a trumpet it's like a a buggle you know like it's just like a little trumpet or a little snake or worm but you get into that the mouth of that thing whatever it looks like the shuttle is so small it can actually fly by the the walls the inner walls of it and get past the weapon so this is like the new thing so that That'll get them inside the, the machine. There's a landing pad. They can get access to the controls. That's why you got a Scotty in there to uh, make it work. From inside, they fight the Borg from this weapon. That This is their advantage against the Borg. So they destroy the cubes. And it takes a while. So, you know, uh, so that gives the Enterprise stuff to do. I also took from the book Vendetta the idea that there's another Locutus, uh, mm. Romulan Locutus called Vox. Okay. Which I think is from the book. So they fight drones that board the ship. You know, it's it's an action movie. So you you get everybody gets a little something to do. But when the Borg are defeated, the planet killer just goes on automatic and starts eating the planets to replenish its fuel. So they all escape via some secret hatch or something, and they head for the constellation in the hopes of ramming it into the thing, just like in the episode. A situation which is resolved by Decker and Kirk fighting over who gets to sacrifice themselves. And, of course, it's Decker. And you get Kirk, Scotty, and Keenzer barely escaping in a shuttle at the end of that thing. So it's a big outer space spectacular. There's not much planet stuff. I'm kind of keeping the planet stuff for the third film. So I I had, like, a film that had both. A film that has an outer space story. Kind of like The Wrath of Khan. It's kind of a... And then the third one will have more, you know, sets and places to go. Uh, and won't be so much space driven. I think the casting is cool. Like I like that idea of, of I mean, you know, having Brad Pitt play Matt Decker and everything. Like I think that's a neat. He idea. certainly can play unhinged. I mean, I'm not saying like Matt Decker is not going to be like Twelve Monkeys unhinged. <laughs> no, no, but but then no, no. I I think I think it's pretty inspired. Like I, I like it. I think it's cool. Here's the problem. Season three. <laughs> So of course you told yeah. me in advance which one you would take, and then it was like that was the only good episode. So <laughs> yeah, I know that. That's why I was like that. That's why my my mandate. I was like I was like okay, I want to pick something that's good. And you know what's funny is I was talking about this with some of my podcast buddies, and some of them did mention and he was you know Justin was kind of like hey like why don't you just take like a really bad one and make it good? And I was like well one that's a lot of work, and then two I'm like my other mandate was like. Does the Kelvin change affect the the timeline? And there were a couple things I could kind of lean towards, you know, like maybe Plato's stepchildren or something. But like ultimately, like most of the ones I looked at, I just kept looking at them and, no, and you yeah. know, kind of reminded myself of the plot. And I was kind of like, no, nah, it doesn't really change it. Doesn't really change it. Doesn't really change it. Maybe, but not really. Doesn't really change it. And you know, the one I picked was the Enterprise incident. No, no and surprise. That was one of the few. <laughs> That I felt like this this would have an impact on it. And there are things from the Kelvin timeline. I mean, this, I think, is the one I would most envision as like a big blockbuster action-y. You know how you had your action-y movie, you know, for the second one just previous? Like this, I think, for me, would be my giant action-y type movie. My elevator pitch is kind of crazy, but it's... Miami Vice meets Donnie Brasco meets 300 Rise of an Empire meets Reservoir Dogs meets Space Explosions. <laughs> so that's my pitch. Permission granted. I'm going to keep the main beats, but this is going to be more like an IDW comic thing that takes like the kernel of the episode, but basically makes it its own thing. The main beats I'm going to keep is the Enterprise invades Romulan space. There's a female Romulan commander. 
and Spock using the Vulcan death grip on Kirk, and then he goes undercover as a Romulan. The IDW series, I noticed, explored this a little bit, but I would like to explore the idea of Nero as kind of like a martyr or an icon of like this new Romulan movement. I mean, you can call it whatever you want, the Church of Nero or something crazy, but just whatever it is where it's like people start getting the future Romulan tats and just start getting all into it and it's like super crazy and what i want is the romulan commander and this is part of my pitch like to to make this the cell kind of like your your brad pitt as matthew decker my pitch is eva green is going to be the romulan commander and she's going to have her own set of neuro tattoos and everything like that as opposed to spock being the one in cumbered or or embroiled in this kind of will they won't they Uh, relationship and all this kind of stuff. I think I want to twist it where the way they get into the whole spy angle, the whole Donnie Brasco undercover thing or Miami Vice thing is, I think the way Kirk and Spock will play it is Spock will, and this will be counter to most Vulcan stuff, but it'll be understandable given the events of the Kelvin timeline. They're going to play it like Spock wants vengeance on the Romulans for having blown up Vulcan. And so instead of it being like Kirk going, oh, what are you talking about? You know, um, why are you betraying me, Spock? And all this other stuff and being enraged. And then, you know, that is what causes the conflict. I think it's going to be like the other way around. So I am going to kind of do the swapperoo where, you know, Kirk still gets quote unquote killed by Spock, but they're going to play it like Spock's enraged. And I don't know. I, I think also the aspect in the Kelvin timeline, like, you know, Spock in some sense was the captain of the enterprise for a little while, you know, in that first movie. Like, I, I think that whole idea of the Romulan commander saying you should have your own ship. Like, I don't think that plays in the Kelvin timeline. So my thought is, you know, Spock's the one that's kind of the madman in this scenario, or at least the, the feigning of a madman so they can get, Jim Kirk killed. He can go undercover as a Romulan. And then this doesn't ever have to be in the presence of Eva Green. Like, this can all be with other Romulans and all this other nonsense. Like, you know, I'm not going to explore any relationship necessarily between Spock and Eva Green. What I want to happen is that Kirk goes undercover, has the surgery. I always wanted this. This is part of my, my I guess, uh, fan wank. Jayla is part of the crew, and so Jayla is kind of kind of like your idea with Janice Rand. Jayla is going to be his the Romulans bodyguard. So Jayla is going to come along and have a bunch of you know I want you to live action sequences or whatever choose to live action sequences or whatever, and she can lop off people's heads or whatever. The other thing is, and this might be too clever, clever for its own good, but I don't remember them ever doing anything like this, unless maybe you count like what way of the gun but most times i'm used to mind melds being like you know with one to one like it's just two people usually i thought it'd be funny to explain why if kirk goes undercover as a romulan without a universal translator maybe it'd be cool for like spock to mind meld with uhura and kirk in a three-way mind meld and since uhura has like all that you know, linguistic knowledge. Like she basically, with the assistance of Spock's mind meld, teaches Kirk how to speak Romulan, like a, a crash course dump type thing or whatever. So that explains how this is all possible. And maybe that's too clever, clever for its own uh, good. It's, it's it's the kind of Gonzo stuff that the Kelvin stuff has been doing. 
Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just, it's like, how do, how do we do this? It's like, Flash cures cancer because he read a book in three seconds. Go! You know, it's just like, it's not like thinking of, of anything really realistic. It's just kind of like, okay, this is a problem and we're going to address it in a clever, clever way by hanging a big lampshade on it and then go. And then, of course, then after that, like, that that's the thing. You get into all kinds of intense kind of like, is Kirk going to be exposed? Kirk has this relationship with Eva Green, but he's, he's like, like this undercover Miami Vice dude, you know, and all this other kind of stuff. And then there's all these kind of crazy battles. And I think in the background of all this, you know, I didn't I didn't really structure it into acts or anything, but mainly more elements of things that are going to happen. And another thing that I'd like to explore and, and something that showed up in the original episode, but I don't feel like they ever really expanded on it. I mean, it was mainly a cost saving measure but the Romulans show up in Klingon warbirds and I just wanted to explore the idea of not only Klingon ships being used by Romulans but maybe like you know the fact that maybe the Klingons and the Romulans are in a rivalry during this movie so that at the end of the big battle there's Klingons there's Federation there's Romulans there's all kinds of parties like getting into a giant big space battle and also the idea that you know this I think was explored in detail in the the IDW stuff I kind of wanted them to explore the idea of okay these people all have cloaking devices now and they're all reverse engineering the neuro future tech and everything kind of like that Kitamura Accords arc in the IDW comics. And so have that aspect be like that. That's not only the cloaking device, but the reverse engineering and everything like that's the whole spy. That's the stuff that Kirk's trying to they're trying to ascertain, like, how much do they know? How much have they reverse engineered? Like, what's going on? Are there still leftover neuro crew left? All this kind of stuff, like in the prisons of Ruapenthe, like all this kind of stuff. To, to sort of embroil him into all this kind of espionage. And, of course, you know, it, more than likely the final act is going to be that three-way gigantic space battle, at which point, you know, Kirk more than likely is either exposed and he has to go back to his ship and they have to save the day just by getting into this kind of big giant space fight. And that's that's basically my, my thought for it. I mean, I, I think you could explore a lot of like sultry kind of stuff with the Romulan commander and Kirk. You can kind of have a bunch of action with, with Jayla and, and then all the kind of space battle stuff, but you can kind of, you know, explore the elements of uh, the best way to put it is maybe like degradation into the, the tatted up Romulans, you know, and like neuro coming into the past, like accelerates that, I guess. I don't know. And it makes sense to, I mean, what are the two big paramount, franchises star trek and mission impossible so this is sort of a crossover in tone yeah yeah yeah. i, I mean i suppose that would fit with the whole jj abrams yeah. star trek vibe you know right because because you've got these kind of espionage movies that are doing a, a similar thing and you could have lots of quick you know narrow escapes and all that kind of stuff my choice uh so i had like you know <laughs> Uh, I did go for uh, an episode that I found very hard to watch when I, mm. it came down to it. Uh, my choice was The Savage Curtain, uh, but I almost went with The Way to Eden. I just don't think Paramount would have the balls to release a full-on Star Trek musical, uh, <laughs> which is – that's what I would do with the way, of, the way to Eden. So, okay. So, The Savage Curtain. I got to say, I was kind of up a creep without a paddle after you picked the Enterprise incident. So – like, especially once I realized, yeah, I picked the Savage Curtain because I could see the moving parts. I could see it, okay, this is how these different parts would become acts in a film. But it's a lot like Arena. And I, I don't know why they didn't make that connection right away, but 
you know, there's a godlike being and there's a contest and the humanity has to prove. It's funny. I was revisiting this because I knew you were going to discuss mm-hmm. it because we, we shared our, our yes. selections, you know, before we got on and everything. And all I could think of this time around was I was like, oh, I'll be damned if this isn't the plot to Secret Wars. <laughs> it is. <You> know? <laughs> no, I, I saw <laughs> the I same thinking. thing. It's Secret Wars. It's that one episode of uh, Challenge of the Super Friends. It's, I mean, it's a classic. Yeah. yeah. But it's also Arena. So I had to make a lot of changes, let's say. And I kind of turned it into the end game of this Star Trek franchise. So bear with me. Okay. The big change is that the Excalibians, who are going to be really cool rock monsters this time. In fact, I think the planet is kind of a rocky version of the Great Link. Okay. A lot of effects there. Uh, they have access to a temporal nexus. So when we meet Abraham Lincoln, Serac, Kalis, they are the real thing. They're just been taken out of time. The Excalibians play Beyonder. That's what it is. They play Beyonder. Yeah, yeah. And they want to see the struggle between good and evil when uh, Kirk, Spock, Uhura, and Rand, the first away team, they want, don't want to play the game. So the nexus sort of... Uh, snakes out and hits the ship in orbit, just like to threaten the ship. In the show, it's just like, you know, suddenly there's like power levels are going off the the rails. It's not very interesting. In the movie, the Nexus ribbon, I don't know if I want to connect it to the Nexus in Generations, but let's say that's what I imagine now. And that ribbon hits the ship. And so the rest of the crew has to fight their own threats out of history. Gives Sulu the chance to do some sword fighting. Maybe Robert the Bruce appears to Scotty since he's name-checked in mm. the episode. Do we want to confound McCoy with his daughter? Or, you know, stuff from their pasts. Stuff like that. Down below, the heroes and villains are running in and out of the Nexus and into history. It's not happening in this little valley. It's happening in actual historical spots. Some elements, I imagine... Might include, this is not exhaustive, but might include Spock and Surak frustrating KLS into giving up. This one might be set on Vulcan, where Spock can have the feels, so to speak, about his destroyed planet if it's on Vulcan. Kirk and Rand in mm. Lincoln's time trying to stop Colonel Green, or maybe it's the Eugenics Wars era con. You bring back Cumberbatch. I don't know. He's trying to meddle with history. Lincoln realizes he has to die in Ford's theater, and that sacrifice is going to inform Kirk later. Because what eventually happens is that the entire ship is released from the Nexus in the wrong time. Namely, Nero's appearance to the Kelvin. And the crew realizes what it has to do, which is prevent the original change to the timeline by saving Kirk's dad and making Uh. sure Nero's ship doesn't stick around or leave anything behind. So by the end, some of our heroes are dead. You know, make it really desperate. There's been... All these tearful farewells. Chris Hemsworth, as Kirk's father, is in the team-up. Kirk and Spock bring Nero's ship back to the TNG era and crash it into Romulus's star or something. Epilogue. William Shatner wakes up at the age he was in Generations on the surface of Vulcan or something to that effect. I, I wanted to have like maybe cameos from the TNG era or that kind of thing when they're moving yeah, yeah. in another history. But at the end, whatever that epilogue is, is a statement of... You know, history's back on track. By the end, we're just saying that this was a time loop. Six movies, this reality was looped back on itself, and now it is undone. Yeah. yeah. So there's no question when you're watching the new shows, is it two timelines? Is it what the Kelvin stuff did was say, oops, like the future doesn't exist anymore and it's all changed. And then, of course, there's like material for both and we have to accept that there's two timelines. I'm saying it's just all one timeline, but... 
that hiccup undid itself eventually. And mm-hmm. now we're back on track with the shows. That's my somewhat malformed idea, but it's malformed because it's it's based on the Savage Curtain. <laughs> I think it's a cool framework to do that kind of end game. I guess, fan wank that, you're, yeah. you know, because I mean, there were always pitches like, you know, oh, they're trying to figure out a way to get seven of nine onto the, you know, the next generation movies or try to figure out how to get, you know, the crews of all the series just to make an appearance, you know, and, and for all intents and purposes, I mean, you know, like you said, the next generation era, I mean, you know, it, it could be as wild and crazy as, you know, one of these, uh, you know, Super Sentai slash Power Ranger reunion things where it's like you you get who you can afford. And as long as there's representation from every little show and error, you're happy. You might have a nice little lineup of, you know, returning cast and, and cameos and stuff. And, and it all sort of makes sense within the context of the fact that these these characters are, are going through various eras and times in a in a battle of good and evil. And it's just that simple. I mean, it could be just fun where, you know, who whoever it is walks through the portal, you know, and everybody starts cheering because it's it's seven of nine. You know, I think it's a fun idea, especially especially when you put it in the framework of, of the pitch of Endgame. You know, it's just this kind of crazy free for all that's designed to wrap up everything. And when you you've given yourself the license now, right, like you can essentially do whatever the hell you want. Right. You can kill whoever you want. You can. It's all ending. The Enterprise can do a double backflip and, you know, rocket around the sun and erupt into a burst of flames or whatever you need it to do. But it's like ultimately it's to tie everything up in a bow and say, okay, here's the standard Star Trek universe again. And we're all fine. We had a nice little divergence that we had a nice little dalliance with the Kelvin thing. And now we're back on track and doing new projects and moving from there. One of my inspirations was that the other half good episode in the season to me was All Our Yesterdays. And that's like the next one over. You know, it's like I couldn't really make it work as a... that. That's what gave me the end game time travel idea and then I just merged it with the Savage Curtain. Mm, that's, okay. that's how okay. I was thinking. So what have we learned about Reboot Trek? Did the changes we made to the stories or kind of bring out the differences between standard Star Trek and J.J. Abrams Trek? Well, what is to you like one of those things that exemplifies the Kelvin timeline as opposed to standard Trek, the other Treks? I I want to be careful how I say this because, I mean, I, you know, I'm not one of those guys. The Kelvin movies are not my hill to die on. Like I, for the most part, enjoyed them. They definitely don't bother me as much as they do some people, but I think at least the way I approach these, it was style over substance, you know, the greatest, most pristine sheen that I could use on something, you know, it's like that was kind of how I came to it, where I was kind of like, I'm going to use what was already there, the core of what's there that was really, really good and just put all the splash and panache and kind of outrageousness that I can sort of splatter on a paint board and, and just see what sticks. And if it's a little messy and some of the paint goes off the edges, like, eh, you know, like 
That's yeah. okay. You know, just come along for the, the roller coaster ride. Enjoy it. Try not to think about it a whole hell of a lot. I, I think that's why I like your idea of tying it up in a nice bow, because then that way it's like you even afforded more license to just be like, ah, whatever. You know, it, it all got righted in the end. Yeah, you know? I think the other one, because of course, yes, it's got to be a big blockbuster action, the big stars, you know, that's what it is. It's a machine. But uh, I think also what I tried to do which is different from the show, and I guess the longer form really helps with that, is that the entire cast is usually activated in a way that it wasn't in the original cast, even the original cast movies. You know, it's always been like a three-boy club. The other characters were lucky to get stuff. Now, that's what I liked about the original reboot film, was that every character really had their, their moment to shine. And, uh, you know, like their action bit, their drama bit, their comedy bit. It was a little more fleshed out in that way than even the original cast movies or most of them. You know, why does The Voyage Home, why is that the most popular, the movie that did the best at the box office? You look at that thing, everybody gets stuff to do. All of the characters get their bit. That's not necessarily true of all of them. And certainly wasn't true in the original series, Especially, you know, as it moved forward, it really did become about the three main characters and everybody else was sort of in the background and didn't have much to do. So that was one of my things that I did in my, my treaties here was to give opportunities for every character to be in on the action, to do things, to have their moments. So I think that's one, like, if we're talking about a positive difference between the reboot films and the original series, that... That, to me, is the the biggest positive. That's something I think I feel strongly about with the 2009 film was I I thought the script was so tight and the fact that everyone got a chance to do something. And it's not an easy thing to do, you know, like, I mean, that that's something where I feel like I'm quick to criticize when somebody who writes, say, a a team superhero book or, you know, an ensemble film or something can't find ways to have everybody have a a good moment, a decent moment, a win, a positive thing that that certain characters don't get shunted off to the background. But it's not easy. And I mean, it's evidenced by there's there's plenty of issues of Justice League or what what have you, you know, where it's like, oh, not not everybody got a chance to shine in that particular film or comic or whatever. So, I mean, that that is something that I can say wholeheartedly as far as the Kelvin films go, you know, or at least the 2009 one, I feel pretty strongly about that everyone in that film played a role in the climax and the the solution the conclusion of the film and you can't always say that about the tv format is different right because you know some sometimes you have a focus on a single character and they're the ones that obligatorily are made to come up with the solution but you know in a film right it is helpful when you cater to your your entire crew, right? Like, I guess just before I forget, I did come up with this uh, uh, amusing to me um, Photoshop of my bonus round. I told you I was going to throw an honorable mention curve. And so uh, my final thing for the Kelvin, have a callback to the good old Star Trek X-Men crossovers of the 90s. So my concept is, as you see below, um, not quite the three boys club. It's got Kirk and Spock, 
with uh, Jayla because I've got a big fan love for Jayla. And uh, I put in the the uncanny X-Men of the Bendis era from 2013. So I've got uh, good old Racer X Cyclops, Magneto in his white garb and attire. And of course, my, my personal favorite, Magic, in her, I guess, Chris... Bacalo uh, attire from the era. You know, I, I didn't have much of a pitch other than I, I just kind of wanted to see those different guys together and they could figure out some kind of uh, hokey explanation like they did in the other comics, why they're they're now encountering each other and have an adventure in a comic book. So that was my final kind of uh, bonus round pitch for, <laughs> for this little endeavor. Yeah, your, yours is more multimedia, certainly. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, it could, well, why don't you tell the folks, Derek, where they can find more of your stuff? Yeah, if you want to listen to uh, podcasts, you can come over to fanholspodcast.blogspot.com. We've got all kinds of shows, uh, usually on the, the proper shows. We talk a lot about Star Trek. So if you're interested in more Star Trek podcasting, uh, I guess, you know, sniff through some of those episodes. There's there's almost 200 at this point, um, and you'd probably find a good number of them having to do with Star Trek. And if you're interested in watching some some videos of me covering the chronological history of comic books to film and television, you can watch the video series History of Comics on Film, and that's over on hocof.blogspot.com. All right. So I'm going to let you rejoin the proper timeline while I do subspace transmissions from, from this universe. Nice. That's Star Trek news and listener feedback on our previous episode. Thanks again, Derek, for your daring imagination. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Should you desire, I can provide character references. Once upon a time, five friends who met on the Bot Talk Transformers forum set out to develop a podcast dedicated to their various interests. Transformers, science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. Part fanboys and part assholes, they came to be known as the Fanholes. Their unbridled enthusiasm for podcasting did not end there. And soon enough, their proper podcast spun off into the Fanholes network of podcasts. Besides our podcast proper, the Fanhole soon had a continuum of genre-specific, focused shows such as Mobile Suit Mondays, Transformers Tuesdays, Toku Thursdays, and Sentai Saturdays. New weekly content can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Fanholes Podcast, the pop culture podcast, made for the fans, by the fans. Incoming subspace transmissions. In an effort to get more people to watch their Trek CBS All Access, who may be changing their name to Paramount Plus in 2021, are going to be airing Discovery Season 1 on CBS, actually All Access, i.e. on their actual network on Thursdays at 10 Eastern, starting September 24th. They've also dropped the first episode of Lower Decks and the second season of Short Treks on YouTube. Will it give people the bug in time for Discovery Season 3? Speaking of short treks, there is some discussion online about doing Captain Proton minisodes. Voyager stars Robert Duncan McNeil and Garrett Wong have been dropping hints about this on their podcast, The Delta Flyers, and it may be more serious than I personally anticipated. McNeil is now a producer and a director, and he might have the resources to make it happen. If this goes forward, we should see black and white chapters of a serial starring Star Trek actors as Flash Gordon-type characters. 
executive producer Alex Kurtzman might have been hinting at this as well when he said he'd like to keep experimenting with short treks, including doing a black and white episode. So, more Captain Proton? I'll believe it when I see it, but a lot of the right people are interested in doing it. Star Trek Discovery has been committed to diversity up to now, and Season 3 is no different with the announcement of non-binary and transgender characters being part of the cast. Non-binary actor Blue Del Barrio will play a teenage non-binary character called Adira, who finds a home on the Discovery, and trans-Asian-American actor Ian Alexander will play a transgender trill called Grey. That the actors playing these characters also represent their slice of LGBTQ life is the big diversity win here. And now a selection of your comments on our previous episode, Insubordination and Mutiny with Mike Lacroix. Alan DeBolu writes says, thanks to Scoid and Mike. I loved your previous episode on this topic was Starfleet Military. And I'm glad to see there's no dip in quality for the sequel. Hopefully your next podcast together will buck the trend set by Superman 3, The Godfather Part 3, and so on. Yes, I want it to be the Star Trek Beyond. In Deep Space Nine, he says, Cisco does mention consequences for Worf disobeying orders and abandoning the mission to save Jadzia in a change of heart. Cisco says he doesn't think Worf will ever be offered a command of his own because of the note in his record. Cisco also says that Starfleet won't do anything more serious because they can't risk knowledge of their intelligence operations getting out. Uh, a secret court-martial would reveal too much information. And it's unclear why the note in Worf's file wouldn't cause that same problem, but maybe it would be less on specifics than even a secret trial. Now, David S. Gutierrez retorted that, yeah, uh, but then Worf leaves to become an ambassador or something, and then he's back on the Enterprise, right? In any case, we never do see him get a command. Maybe the Picard show will contradict this. I'm also reminded of when I got a real black mark on my school record in uh, 12th grade. Me and a friend of mine started an underground newspaper, sort of parody, mad magazine-ish newspaper that laughed at school days and whatnot, and we were caught. Now, we were told no university would ever take us. Um, well, he's a medical doctor now, and uh, I do have my degree in English uh, lit. So, I don't know. It's something people say to make you feel bad about your actions. I'm sure Worf's fine. And Chris Franklin says, interesting discussion, and I appreciate Mike's perspective. But, you know, I'm glad he came from the position of remembering this is entertainment and fiction and therefore doesn't follow regulations for dramatic purposes. I would never want to see Trek bogged down with such narrative handcuffs, but I also don't want them hand-waving everything away. I think Kirk and crew saving Earth at the end of 4 is perfectly acceptable Hollywood fix for what they did in 3, and I guess most audiences feel the same way. And I, I do want to be clear to Chris and to anyone else who had these thoughts, that uh, the point is always, whenever I do these kinds of shows where we compare reality, like when we did the epidemiology episode, we're comparing Star Trek to reality. The comparison is the thing. It's not a criticism. It's a comparison. And finally, let's look at Jeff R's comment. He says, I have to think there's some element of an executive pardon involved at the end of Star Trek IV. Star Trek military law has to be at least different just to account for the fact that 
it's a very real possibility that someone in your chain of command has been possessed, parasited, reprogrammed, or replaced by a doppelganger. Voyager had a few on-topic episodes here, worst case scenario, and the Voyager conspiracy being two of them. And yeah, looking forward to the discussion of how determined Janeway was to destroy Kim's career next time Mike comes on. <laughs> the Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page, I always say this, patreon.com slash fwpodcast. If you like this content and want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. It even unlocks rewards. For example, for $5 a month, you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendations list, like Doug Van Diver, who is now captain of the science ship USS Bolaris. So this is a better ship than last month. <laughs> He keeps getting better and better assignments. Join Doug and I in the fleet at patreon.com. And as usual, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page and on Twitter where we are FW Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Spotify. And until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. <laughs>